I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Thank you very much for joining me again. It's just me again this week. I promise my co-hosts Amrit and Mariana will be joining us again on the podcast, but it's just been uh, difficult to coordinate different episodes coming out quite thick and fast in the new year. So they will be joining us very soon in, in just a couple of weeks. This week, we've just got the one interview for you, reflecting on the state, the health of democracy in the United States, a year on from the inauguration of President Joe Biden. And I'm joined for this conversation by Gabby Cook-Francis, a new Academy Fellow in the US and America's program here at Chatham House. We start by reflecting on the legacy, the impact of the January 6th riots at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. last year, which some refer to as an insurrection that critical moment where it looked as though Trump supporters were not going to accept the results of the presidential election and seek to influence the uh, confirmation of, of Biden as president. From there, we have a wider chat about the infrastructure of US democracy, the potential for disruption at the midterm elections, and really thinking about how the Biden administration has addressed this issue alongside the long list of other policy concerns that have been on the agenda in his first year. Hope you enjoy listening. Okay, so I'm back in the media studio at Chatham House, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Gabby Cook-Francis, the Leland Foundation Academy Fellow in the US and Americas program here at Chatham House. Gabby, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. It's great to have you on on the podcast. Welcome to your debut podcast at Chatham House. (laughs) What a pleasure in the studio, live and in color. (laughs) It makes such a difference, it not being on Zoom, I have to say. It's really lovely being in the office, and it's even lovelier being able to get a desk without having to book first on Deco (laughs) between you and I. That is true. Yeah, we're pretty much the only people in the building today. But joking aside, we're here to talk about something pretty serious. Your particular field of expertise, which is democracy in the United States. And obviously, this episode is coming out a whole year after Joe Biden's inauguration. It's just over a year since the infamous events of January 6th in Washington, D.C., where pro-Trump supporters stormed the Capitol. And we all thought that some quite serious stuff was going to go down on that day, and quite serious stuff did. And, And the implications are still being felt. And... I just thought it'd be great to get into that today with you and and think about the sort of policy implications of what happened that day. So to begin with, could you maybe just tell us a bit about what your initial reactions were January 6th, 2021, watching this stuff on the news? How did you feel as a US citizen? It's always interesting watching your home news abroad, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but Watching a domestic calamity abroad is even more kind of surreal and really puts a lot of things into perspective. At the time, I was in grad school and I was studying American democracy. And I remember just sitting in my bed in my flat and getting these news notifications that started pouring in and turning on CNN 
and just being absolutely stunned to see hordes of people Mm. walking up on the Capitol and then over the course of the night to see some of the rioters be able to get into the building, get onto the Senate floor, leaving notes for specific lawmakers, ransacking their offices. It was truly one of the most stunning things that I've ever seen. And especially being abroad, my immediate reaction was, I need to contact my family, I need Mm. to contact my friends, I just need to check in with them and to see how they're doing, because especially after the events of the previous summer, specifically around the Black Lives Matter protest movements, I was just concerned about how that specter of violence could really quickly get out of control and impact people who I really care about. Yeah, absolutely. And and I suppose it's very hard when the events are actually unfolding before your eyes to get a sense of how significant it was going to be. But do you remember what you were thinking in terms of how you were receiving that? Did it seem like a kind of seismic political event or was it something that you felt with the right political leadership afterwards would be easy to get over? When I saw the events unfolding at the Capitol on January 6th, I immediately thought that it was just going to be an enormous and traumatic event in American history. Mm. The only other events that I could compare it to would maybe be the caning of Charles Sumner in 1856 or the War of 1812. And as a student of international relations, but studying American democracy at the time, seeing a movement, a social movement like this, like the Trump movement, or a conspiratorial movement like the QAnon movement devolve into an open specter of political violence really did seem to be an ominous warning about the trajectory of American democracy, but also of our constitutional democracy and whether or not Joe Biden would actually be able to become the next president of Mm. the United States really was an open question in my mind at that point. And even though I'm young and I haven't seen many presidential (laughs) elections, I can't ever remember that being a conversation in my lifetime. And the two events that I referenced previously in American history obviously are related to coup d'etats, failures of democracy, civil war. And that's really what I saw coming down the pike when I watched the events of January 6th. You mentioned in your first answer, the particular context with your family around comparing it to the events of the previous summer with the Black Lives Matter movement and the response, more importantly, maybe the response of the authorities to the mass movements that came out onto the streets to call for racial justice. I mean, Did you feel at the time, were you making those kind of comparisons about the level of response that you saw from the state in response to the to the January 6th protesters? It was impossible not to make the comparison. I was in Boston at the time of George Floyd's murder. Mm. And in reaction to the first couple days of BLM protests in the city, there were armed vehicles that were going down the street. There were hundreds and hundreds of police on bicycles, on motorcycles, in cars, standing on the street with guns out at full attention. Just so that I could get back into my apartment, I had to show my ID on the street because there were lines of police officers lining up and down the street across the street from the Prudential Center. So... When I saw the videos on Twitter of cops opening the barricades and letting people in, or when I saw videos of protesters being able to get right up to the windows of the Capitol and being able to go inside, it was impossible not to note the difference in the level of state violence and also in the level of preparedness Mm. that the state had to counteract what ultimately became a deadly riot. And so the shock was on multiple levels. It wasn't just the shock that this event could happen, but it was the shock that 
the people who are supposed to be prepared for this eventuality, the people who have been telling us for 20 years to take our shoes off at an airport, were not prepared in their own offices for a violent attack and weren't prepared for something that had honestly been hinted online for months and months leading up to January 6th, as we found out recently. I was listening to another podcast that was that was covering the events of, of January 6th, and one of the interesting points that they were making there was they were highlighting how many of the people that attended that day were not actually members of far-right conspiracy organizations, the alt-right in inverted commas, whatever that means for us. Of course, those people were there in all of their military fatigues and assault rifles, etc., terrifying scenes. But that actually there were so many people who otherwise would just be kind of ordinary. You would see Mm -hmm. them as like ordinary people on your street that Mm -hmm. were there that day. I just wondered, how much do you think of January 6th as a alt-right phenomenon versus mainstream Republican voters, which, if if anything, to me at least, feels more scary. Yeah, whether or not January 6th was perpetrated by the fringe or by the mainstream. And I think that the evidence from the January 6th House Committee has shown that mainstream Republicans did plan this and mainstream Republicans were involved in January 6th and were involved in Every level of planning and an execution, a recent article by ProPublica came out that said 10 state level officials, GOP state level officials, are involved in the Oath Keepers. And the Oath Keepers are a far right militia group that was involved in the security and planning of January 6th, not for police, but for protesters themselves. I think a lot has been said about misinformation and about the spread of conspiracies like QAnon or the Great Replacement Theory leading to January 6th, but much less is being said about democratic backsliding and about the growth of ultra-nationalist propaganda and ultra-nationalist fascistic rhetoric. I think that we often think, and it's been forgotten perhaps over the course of history, that what props up these movements is not going to be the extreme fringes, but it has to be the bulk and mainstream of the culture. Without, If Trump were only fueled by far-right voices, he wouldn't have gotten 78 million votes. The reality of the situation is that still um, the vast majority of Republicans believe that the election was stolen from Joe Biden. The vast majority of Republicans believe in the some of the tenets of QAnon and of the Great Replacement Theory. And while there are Republicans in the House that are working to counter these narratives like Liz Cheney, there's still a very open question about whether they have any influence at all in in their party or whether or not what we previously would have said was a moderate Republican in Liz Cheney even has any place in her party anymore. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about how senior politicians responded in the aftermath of that event, particularly because it felt at the time from London watching it that it did feel like a bit of a potentially a turning point. It had the potential for, you know, this was the moment where finally sort of senior Republican leaders would say enough is enough. We shouldn't have been supporting Donald Trump to this extent. And and you had the likes of Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy standing up in the House and, and saying you know, we condemn what happened and the events, whilst also voting not to impeach him. But they were saying, at least rhetorically, that enough was enough. Looking back now, was that ever a choice that was really on the table for those Republican politicians? Or or do you think by that stage in early 2021, 
they relied far too much on the Trump wing of the Republican Party. Like that, that was the future of their party to some extent. And they had to make a choice between having careers and not having careers. I mean, the sad thing is that, you know, if Kevin McCarthy didn't want to run for re-election, he could get another job, mm. right? I think that some Trump supporters, particularly in positions of power, would like to say, well, I just have to feed my kids like everyone else. What else am I supposed to do? And that's obviously a lie. It's not the big lie that Trump won the election, <laughs> but it's a lie nonetheless. Yeah. This is a choice that they're making for political expediency. It was a series of choices over decades to empower what used to be a fringe of the Republican Party that then gained power through the Gingrich Revolution in 1994 that picked up speed with the ultra-nationalist Christian conservative movement under the Bush years that then mutated into this populist fervor during the Tea Party, which led to Donald Trump. There is a through line of ideological consistency where not just Kevin McCarthy or not just Donald Trump, but an entire class and generation of Republican leaders gave up their legitimacy and gave up the political field to this part of American society that now forms the Republican base. And so at this point, I do think that the base is in a different position than the Republican leadership. It's not so much a GOP civil war as what we were discussing um, maybe during the Trump years, but much more a capitulation. The war has been won and the base won, particularly on January 6th. Without making too many huge predictions, what are the implications of that then? If the base won, where do we go from here for the Republican Party and for US politics, I guess? I mean, it's the million dollar, beyond a million dollar, it's the trillion dollar question <laughs> of where the United States can go from here. I think Joe Biden has been very clear in framing January 6th as a hinge point in American democracy in which, by the skin of our teeth, American democracy and our constitutional order was able to survive. But it, our democracy is only such for as long as we keep it. Mm. Um, and Joe Biden has really placed a lot of the responsibility squarely at the feet of the American people to fight for and to defend our democracy um, and to vote like our democracy depends on it because it really does. In terms of the Republican position, clearly the January 6th riot was an opportunity to double down on the conspiracies, on the vitriol, and honestly the grievance that helped fuel Donald Trump to power. What will be most interesting to me is to see whether or not the rioters at January 6th continue to support Donald Trump. He famously did not offer any of them pardons, but these were his most fervent and loyal supporters. These are people who were willing to enact violence for him, people who are willing to go to prison for him, um, that none of these people, particularly high-profile figures like the QAnon shaman who was infamously on the floor of the Senate, that none of these people feel like Trump had their back. I'm curious to see whether or not they would vote for him again or whether they would support him again, whether or not they can, because they've now been charged with felonies and felons can't vote in the United States. Mm -hmm. I think Donald Trump was propagated to office on the back of grievance politics, particularly white grievance politics that dictated that the blue-haired feminists and the lazy immigrants and the global shadowy coastal elite are stealing your jobs and are ruining your way of life. 
And I think what January 6th did and what the election did in 2020 was it provided a new avenue of grievance where still all of those obvious misapprehensions still stand, but where the grievance doesn't have to be about Donald Trump. The grievance can be this election was stolen from us Mm. and Donald Trump did not fight for us. Mm. And now whether or not Donald Trump is in the picture, this grievance will outlast him. And I think that it will still continue to have a tremendous impact on American political culture, on this new specter of political violence that's been introduced into our culture and also on our electoral politics. And someone who has been having to deal with the kind of short-term immediate impacts of this has been President Biden, as you already mentioned. I just wondered if you could give us a bit of your sense of how the Biden administration has been approaching this question beyond the rhetoric. What policy levers do they have to pull at their disposal to shore up American democracy? And what have they achieved on this issue? It's a difficult question because I'm torn as somebody who voted for Biden and somebody who always wants to be optimistic about the state of democracy with the really crushing political reality that we find ourselves in in the U.S. I think that Biden is contending with multiple problems at a national level, but also at a state level that impact democracy. At the national level, very clearly, we have Build Back Better, a dysfunctional Congress. We have voting rights that are being blocked in the Senate by the filibuster and an intransigent Mitch McConnell, who is not interested whatsoever in passing further voting rights. But also at a state level, we see a lot of Democratic backsliding in terms of election officials being purged pretty systematically in red states, including my own home state of Arizona. We've seen increases in gerrymandering. We've seen really kind of outrageous and bald-faced attempts at election maneuvering so that the popular vote does not necessarily have to indicate whether or not a candidate won at a state level. Mm. Obviously, at the federal level, it's different with the Electoral College. But what we see is Joe Biden having these series of problems and not really having solutions for them. There's discussion around voting rights, but where's the voting rights passage? You Mm. know, there's discussion about what's happening at a state level with Republicans, and yet we're struggling to have a conversation with Joe Manchin The scale of the problem and the tools that Biden is willing to use to address those problems seem completely mismatched. And at the same time, time marches on. Mm. The, The midterms are coming up and without a substantial change in our voting rights legislation or without a change in our democratic functioning uh, or democratic institutions at a federal level in Congress, I don't see what stops January 6th from happening again at a state level or at a federal level. And that's deeply unsettling. Yeah, obviously, as the midterms approach, I'm sure we'll have to get you back on as well to talk about those in detail. One thing looking ahead as well, not just to the midterms, but also to the 2024 presidential election and other things, another argument I've seen going around on social media is is this question of whether the events of January 6th will basically set a precedent, regardless of which side you're on in a sense of how to respond to election defeats and you know people have been saying well you know trump might get back in in 2024 and if he does the democrats won't accept it either and they'll think it's rigged and they'll have their own (laughs) big lie situation do you think that's credible do you think that's something that that is likely to happen that just increasingly 
elections will, regardless of who wins, will just become far more contested for months and years, hence after the result. I do. I think that contested elections will become a lot more common, particularly in the midterms. I can see a lot of contested elections happening at a state level, similar to what happened with Stacey Abrams' run for the governorship of Georgia Mm. and funny tricks going on with election machines and voting in black and Hispanic majority areas. However, the U.S. suffers right now from asymmetric polarization, meaning that the GOP has, and this has been measured by multiple political scientists, particularly I'm thinking of Francis Lee's work and Norm Ornstein's work, but they've demonstrated that the GOP is more polarized, is further to the right on an ideological spectrum than Democrats are to the left as Mm. a party and also individual level polling demonstrates this as well. So while I do think that contested elections are definitely more likely in the future, I still think that a majority of this energy, and particularly when it comes to using political violence as a tool or as a tactic to respond, I don't see that being as much of an issue on the left as I see it being already embedded and permitted on the right. We've spoken about some pretty heavy topics in this conversation, and I think obviously there's a lot, even now, that that is still very concerning, and obviously there are the midterm elections coming up, as we've already discussed this year, so we'll be covering this again. But I just thought maybe we could end with a bit of speculative thinking on this, and again, I don't want you to make any hard predictions, but, you know, if I said Gabby Cook-Francis you're in charge of saving American democracy. Biden set up a commission for saving democracy and you're the you're the boss. Where do you think you would begin? Where do the roots of democratic renewal actually lie in the United States? That's a great question. I think that democratic renewal has to come from the people. I think that the people of the United States are so much better than the government that we have at the moment and are so much better than the institutions that we have at the moment. There was an interesting conversation last night hosted by the U.S. America's program and chaired by the director of our program, Leslie Van Murray. And one of the panelists remarked that Americans are fighting and looking at problems with very different solutions. Mm. And I actually disagree with that point. I think that our understandings of the problems are very similar. I think that our solutions diverge in in different ways. But I think that the core problems that we all understand to be in American democracy around corruption, around the role of money in politics, around undue access and influence of corporations and private interests, around the cost of living, around a broken social contract between workers whose productivity has increased and whose wages have remained stagnant or have gone down, around being in the middle of a pandemic and still not being able to get free masks or Mm. tests or let alone health care. It feels like, generally speaking, the general population understands that something in the United States has gone quite wrong in our policy realm. And there is a hope and looking to our political institutions to fix it. But I think that it does have to come from the ground up and from these Mm. bottom-up solutions. I would look at referendums, state-level referendums, and being able to pass reforms that will change the material conditions for people in their lives. I would look at the bravery of BLM protesters for trying to 
implement institutional reform to police departments through state level referendums. I would look to parents who are involved in school board meetings and who are taking a really active role in their children's education given the difficulties of COVID. And I would tell the Biden administration to look at what's happening from this grassroots movement and rather than to belittle or cajole these groups and say, well, that's not possible and politics is the art of the possible, to expand what's possible. January 6th happened because of a failure of imagination at the top levels of American government. And that is what put our country and our constitutional order in danger. If we can have the same level of imagination for hope and for a different type of politics, a better politics, one that the American people deserve, I think that another January 6th would be less likely um, and we can change the conditions that actually led to that horrible day taking place. Such a fantastic way to finish. Gabby Cook-Francis, thank you so much for joining me. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Thank you very much for listening to the end, if you're here. This is obviously the first time, really, that we've had an in-depth chat about domestic politics in the United States. If you want to check out some of our previous episodes, we we covered uh, US foreign policy a number of times last year and also in previous seasons with other colleagues from the US and America's program. Definitely recommend going back to those. And we will be talking more about the foreign policy dimension of the Biden presidency later this year as well. We'll be back next week where we'll be talking about humanitarian crises to watch in 2022 with some partners from the International Rescue Committee. We'll be back next week with a really interesting episode on the humanitarian crises to watch in 2022 with partners from the International Rescue Committee. As ever, if you want to pitch a topic for Undercurrents to cover, please do get in touch with me at bhorton at chathamhouse.org. And if you want to keep up with the rest of Chatham House's work, the best way to do that is to check out our website, www.chathamhouse.org, or to follow us on Twitter, at Chatham House. Until next time, thanks for listening.